A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And on this occasion, it's appropriate to announce that the Wayus Farm sale is going on with Tubishvat coming up. We know that Tubishvat is the Rosh Hashanah for trees, so the Rosh Hashanah for buying Sfarim is definitely the Wayus Farm sale. Get grab the opportunity now. Walk out with a big pile of svarim and books, and you'll enjoy it the rest of the year. So don't miss this opportunity. It's going on for the next few weeks um, up in Washington Heights until uh, February twenty third. Last episode, I made a error, and some very alert uh, um, listeners, and one of them actually is an expert in the field of uh, Carlene Stalin Chassidus, especially in America, and uh, several of them were uh, kind enough to alert me to this uh, mistake about the Carlina Rebbe who survived the war and came to the United States, Rabbi Yechanan Perlov, whose grandson is the current uh, Stalin Rebbe in Givat Zev in Eretz Yisrael. And I mentioned that he got remarried after the war, after losing his wife to food poisoning when they were in Siberia and one of his daughters. Um, he did not have any children from that second marriage. I mistakenly said he did. And I think I got mixed up with um, with the Biana story. The Biana Rebbe, who wasn't from a second marriage, but I was getting to was... that uh, I, 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 Again, I mistakenly said that he... that the uh, Carlina Rebbe had kids, and and uh, the sons weren't um, Rebbe material, and that was clearly uh, mixing up with the story of the Bayana Rebbe, who it eventually went to his uh, grandson also, so that similarity got me confused there, and I appreciate the pointing it out. So just to clarify, the Stalin Rebbe did not have any children from his second marriage, he did not have any sons, he had uh, this one surviving daughter, Oh, and that daughter had a son who's the current rabbi, had several children, but had a son who is the current rabbi. And also, not, the other thing I said, I said that this uh, grandson was only born after Rabbi Echanan, the Stalin Rebbe, passed on, and that was also incorrect. 
He actually was born a little over a year before the um, previous Rebbe died. And uh, so the current Stalin Rebbe um, already was alive when his grandfather, uh, before his grandfather died. So I appreciate the correction. And tonight um, we'll speak a lot, especially yard side, and we're going to deviate from the normative um, theme of this of this uh, podcast, Jewish History Soundbites, as the title implies, is all about history. And today I'm going to do something different for a change. Instead of history, it's kind of history, but it's actually my personal memories, my personal reminiscences of a very special individual, Rafal Shmulevitz, one of the Rosh Yeshiva at the Mir, and one of my Rebbeim when I was in the Mir Yeshiva, and I was privileged to enjoy a very close relationship with him, and he was an incredible individual, and unfortunately not much is known about him in wider circles, so I felt that at the opportunity of his yard site, maybe we'll speak about him a little bit instead of a regular uh, history um, soundbite class, whatever you want to call it, and and there will just be some stories that I myself experienced with him or was witness to, so it's all first-hand no research, no books, no nothing. It's all from my own uh, memory. He was a very, very warm person, very personable. He was very accessible. Um, he was a great man in learning, and to many he seemed a little bit distant and scary. And especially if you actually spoke to him in learning, which I'll try to get to, he was kind of tough and he sometimes yelled. But that was all within the the discussion. And actually when you approached him, he was very approachable very down-to-earth, very real, and that's what made him so amazing. He had that duality to him, and I remember uh, when I first started getting close with him, I was you know, I was a single bacher in yeshiva, and I called him up, I went over to him after davening, and one morning I asked him if I could eat a, a Shabbos meal by him. He lived down the block from yeshiva, like a minute away, and he said, okay, I have to ask my wife, I'll get back to you. I figured I'll just go over to him the next morning after that, and he asked him if he had a chance to speak to his wife about it. But I got a call to my phone, which I missed. And back in those days, we had answering machines, and uh, and uh, I listened to the messages afterward. And it was Red Dor Rafal Shmulevitz. This is uh, Rafal Shmulevitz speaking. And I spoke to my wife, and uh, we're looking forward to you coming Friday night. And it was, again, with the simplicity that he felt he had to get back to me. He said he would. So he picked up a phone, called up, and said, this is Rafal Shmulevitz, and you could come over. He had no airs about him. Another time I ate by him, actually, he was with a friend of mine, and he comes over to us right when everyone was getting up to wash. He comes over to us, and he said, I want to tell you, you're joining us for a very special Friday night uh, Suda tonight because it's my wife and I's anniversary. I think it was like his 40th anniversary, some like a round number. I don't remember which one. And uh, it was just so cute that he shared that with us and, you know, and felt that that was, uh, that was uh, important. And he also insisted, you know, some of the guys who ate by him, some of the guys I ate with by him um, were American yeshivish guys who were Yiddish speakers and not really Hebrew. But he insisted that there would be no Yiddish spoken at the Shabbos meal because his grandchildren and his daughters-in-law and even his daughters uh, did not know Yiddish, and he didn't want that his own family should feel uncomfortable at the table. So he had a very good relationship with his grandchildren. He used to play with them. It was 
there was no singing at his at his Shabbos meal. Absolutely none, none at all. He was a very old school litvak, and uh, he didn't even sing Shalom Aleichem and Eishes Chayil. He would walk in, he would say good Shabbos to his wife, to his kids, his grandkids, and he would sit down in his seat and make Kiddush. It was really straightforward about that. In fact, when I was already married, and and my wife was taking tests in school and whatever it was, so you know we couldn't make Shabbos, and I was kind of bored of going to my in-laws for a few Shabbos in a row. So I called him up and I said, can I come uh, this time with my wife? Can I come there? So he said, uh, sure, come by with your wife. And as soon as we came in, Rebetzin Shmulevitz, Rebetzin Edna, Shmulevitz comes over to my wife and said, I just want you to feel comfortable here. By the way, we don't have any singing here in this house. I was like, they, just to clarify, there's no misunderstanding afterwards. In fact, when I was davening in Yeshiva on Rosh Hashanah, I was also already married. Uh, Rafal came over to me in the middle of laning, not in the middle of laning, like uh, in between two aliyahs. And he said, um, you know, after laning, the, we're going to have Kiddush. So we have Kiddush in, in my home, um, at home. So it would be a big covet for us if you and your wife would join us for the Kiddush. So please tell your wife and you should come by and, and have Kiddush by us. And I'll tell you, be honest, uh, the Rosh Hashanah Kiddush was the highlight of the Rosh Hashanah day. It was more exciting than the davening. He kept on saying, yeah, we have plenty of time till they start. This is back in the good old days of the Mir, when the Kiddush break on Rosh Hashanah was about an hour long. Um, and there was, you know, coffee and cake and food and schmoozing and, you know, Tyra, obviously, also. It was a lot of fun. You know, he, one of the things uh, about Rafal Shmulevitz was that he... He had almost an allergy to chumras. He couldn't stand chumras, and he used to speak about it all the time. I once uh, asked him, basically as a joke, I was eating by him once on on Sukkot, the first night of Sukkot, in his sukkah with his family, and I asked him, I like, I, it was kind of as a joke, uh, I said, how many Yisraelim did you buy? Because, you know, the briskers, they buy quite a few, and I I knew him already. I knew that he he's not into the whole chumra thing. So he said, he said, it says in the Mishnah in Sukkah, Lulav Echad Ve'esrig Echad. You have one Lulav and one Esrig. He said, anything more than that is probably Baltaisif, because what do you need more than one Lulav and one Esrig for? He, you know, he ate um, um, machine matzah. He said, after the first Kezayas on, on Pesach night by the Seder, he never touched hand matzah. And the rest of Pesach, he ate machine matzah. And one time he told me, that there's people in the Mir Yeshiva because of the influence of the Chazoyin Ish, they uh, they separated an extra Meiser called Iber Meiser. They separated Meiser from the food a second time, an extra time as a Chumrah. So he told me that he told them once in the Yeshiva that in the kitchen that he'll be happy to eat that extra Meiser separated because otherwise it'll be thrown out and you shouldn't be throwing away food and it's a good way to get free food and he was obviously teasing them. When he, he was in charge of the tkiyas, the blowing the shayfer in the base medrash uh, of the mir on Rosh Hashanah, he was the makri, and and very often in a lot of shuls today, there's extra tkiyas after davening just in case you have to be, you know, you have to cover all the all the different opinions of how to blow the shayfer. Rabbeinu would not allow those tkiyas to be blown in the main base medrash of Mir Yeshiva. He said we never did it. It's extra. It's a chumrah. It, if you want to do it. 
do it somewhere in the street, do it in a side room. It's not to be done in the base marriage. We don't do those things. He happened to have been very, uh, very lenient about the tekiyas altogether. He let a lot of things fly. Once the 30 tekiyas were over, he would schmooze things out with the, with the Baal Tekeya. He, he was, he was pretty okay with, uh, with, um, with, with those type of things because he had his priorities straight. He told me that a few times. Um, he by Tekiya Gedela, I remember just about on the topic of the Shifer. He said he didn't have he didn't do Tekiya in the Mir Yeshiva. He didn't do Tekiya Gedela. He didn't say Tekiya Gedela. It blew it a little longer, but he didn't say Tekiya Gedela. So some some wise guy who was trying to find a way to talk to him came over to him after davening. I was I was I was standing there, and he said, "How come you didn't say Tekiya Gedela?" And he looks at him and he says, we never did. And he walked away. <laughs> we never did. We don't do that. Why should we? He once told me that it's 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 much harder to work on your midas, work on your character development, on your anger, on your on all types of things in midas. It's harder to work on that a whole year round, every day, a battle of trying to become a better person, serving Hashem that way. That's a hard but to do five or six chumras a year is easy. So people are looking for the easy way out, and that's why they do chumras. But I, I'm not looking for the easy way out. So uh, so, uh, so that's why he even, I once mentioned to him a certain guy in yeshiva, I was asking him about him, like a, you know, a hush of a guy, an important person in yeshiva. You know, I said the name then to him, and he said his name back to me. I'm not going to say his name, obviously, now. And he said, "Oh, that guy is a machmer. He's a meshugana." <laughs> so he was he was pretty sharp about that opinion. Which brings me to the next point: is that he did not like sgulas. What was becoming popular in the Jewish world in his time was doing all kinds of sgulas, and he was fire against that. He, he once he once let loose in public about it, not just to me. That was at a a Hanukkah gathering in the yeshiva, a Hanukkah party. And he gave a schmooze, and he completely was uncensored. And it was recorded, it was in public, it was an amazing thing. Uh, I couldn't believe he did it. It was like real gutsy. And he just spoke against getting skulas and against chumras and against, um, you know, going for brachas. And he said, it's not, it's not, that's not called serving Hashem. That's not what it's all about. That's, that, that's not having your priorities straight. That's not what's important in, in Judaism and Yiddishkeit. And he said, if, if zgulas work, then it's because Hashem is testing you. He said, Ki Hashem, Hashem is testing you to see if you're still going to believe in Him and not in the zgula. He said, Hashem wants you to believe in Him, not in zgulas. And whenever I would try to discuss it with him privately, he would sometimes, he didn't like talking about it even. He he said he would say he would brush it off and say you know what I think about schoolers you know I don't believe in these stuff why are you bothering me about it he sometimes would poke fun it's not so popular today but I remember in those days it was about going forty days in a row to all kinds of places and then you get he said again he said these people are looking for easy ways out I once asked him about a schooler about going to a Besden and they decree that you should get uh, some sort of um, Yeshua, some sort of better health or or whatever you're asking for, a child or this or that. I asked him about it and he blew up at me. He said, you know what I believe about these things. Why are you just bothering me about it? He said, you're going to go to this this place and this gula 
tells you that you can tell God what to do. He said, let God do what he needs to do without you telling him what to do. Why should you tell him what to do? Maybe you could pray to him and he'll help you. But, you know, these schools thing is not, uh, is not the way to, is not the way, is not our way. It's not the, not the old school way. And in, in that context, he also didn't like the trend towards revisionist history. I used to speak to him about history all the time. He loved stories. He loved speaking about the mirror, about his father, about Shanghai. He was a little child in Shanghai. He had arrived in Shanghai when he was four years old, and he was there till he was about 10. And he had very childlike memories of Shanghai. He said, he said, my memory remains of a child in Shanghai, and it was fun. To me, it was fun. He said, my father used to complain about Shanghai in those years and how hard it was for the rest of his life. And to me, it was, it was, he even once described it to me as Ganeid, and he said, we played, we had fun. He said he had a private tutor there. He told me that, uh, that, the, that this tutor taught him Tanakh. He said that um, he, he, he learned, uh, he studied with this tutor that his father hired for him. He said there was a co-ed Jewish school that he did, his father did not want him to go to, so he had to hire a private tutor at home. By the way, his father only told him he's not allowed to go to that school. His older sisters, Rebetzin Ezrachi and Rebetzin Atul Parchavich, Rebetzin Rivka Ezrachi and Rebetzin Atul Parchavich, they did go. So, and that school is in English, actually. And he told me that he he knew English in Shanghai. He said in the street in Shanghai, they um, they spoke English in the in the in those circles. And he knew English as a child, and he said he forgot it all. And he told me in a kind of like a, a in almost like a sad way, uh, in a wistful way, I guess. He said that he wishes he still knew it because he sees the distance that American guys in the Mir Yeshiva today have from him because of the language barrier. He only knew Hebrew and Yiddish, and a lot of Americans didn't know either. And he said he wishes he had more of a connection to the American Bakram and Yeshiva, and he feels bad that he can't communicate with him because he forgot his English. And in fact, and this is the heart that he had, uh, you know, amazing heart that he had. He was a very emotional person in general. He seemed, again, on the distance like cold, but he was brought to tears very easily, kind of like his father. Very, very emotional, very brimming. And he, he once told me that um, he would go up to the base Yeshaya, base Medrash in the Mir Yeshiva, which was the American base Medrash, and he would give a shir once a week because the Rosh Yeshiva, he was considered one of the Rosh Yeshiva and the Yeshiva, and he was supposed to give a shir kloli in the base Medrash and all the different but uh, Medrash in the yeshiva, and he gave it in in Yiddish or Hebrew and in, in Beis Yishaya. I don't remember which one, but not English. And the guys, most of the guys, would leave because they didn't understand it. And he would come up in the elevator, and uh, and everyone when he would come out, everyone was waiting to go in to leave, and they all kind of felt bad and uncomfortable when they saw him coming out of the elevator. So he told me that he wishes he had the strength. To uh, to go up the stairs, the four flights of stairs, to go to the Shir Kali because he why should he have to make these guys feel uncomfortable? Why should they feel guilty leaving? He said they don't understand my Shir anyway. Why should they stay? They should all leave. They don't understand it anyway, and they, and they shouldn't feel guilty that they leave. They're doing the, they're doing what's fine, uh, and 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 here because I come out of the elevator, so now they feel all bad about it. And there's no reason they should feel bad about it. So when I do have the strength, I go up the f- four flights of stairs. But uh, I wish I had the strength more often, and this way I wouldn't have to make the guys feel bad. Uh, but uh, back to revisionist history, he told me that the amount of stories that people make up about his father, he said it's rare for him to hear a true story about his father. And he, 
he, uh, he, he's given up on trying to correct people. So I asked him for an example, and he said that there was a guy who published in, in like a, you know, one of these uh, Friday afternoon Shab- Shabbos papers that they distribute in shuls, he he published a story about about his father, Chaim Shmulevitz, that he was so such a big masmid and so much in his learning that he didn't help his wife in the kitchen on Friday. So he went over to the guy and he said, I don't know where you got this story from, but I grew up in that home and I remember my father helping my mother in the kitchen quite often and pretty much all the time. So I don't know where you got that from. So he said, well, I got it from a good source. So I'm not retracting. Serbafal says to him, but, you know, I'm probably a better source because, you know, it was my mother and father and I grew up in that kitchen and I used to hang around the kitchen too. And they didn't. And the guy wouldn't back down. So that gave him, you know, made him pretty uh, upset. Um, he once told me that that a guy told him a, a whole story about his his aunt in America, he had, and, you know, Shlomo Shmulevitz, or Chaim Shmulevitz's younger brother, so it's his wife, which was Befal's aunt, and they, and the whole story that happened with them when Chaim Shmulevitz came to America, and this and that, whatever, I don't remember the details of the story, unimportant, but after the whole long story, um, he asked Befal, this person told Befal, is this a true story? So Rafael said to him, yeah, there's one detail of the story that's true. I happen to have an aunt who lives in America. Everything else of that story never happened. He was a very wise person, very with it, very with the world. Before I bought my apartment in Beit Shemesh, I asked him advice about real estate, and he was really on top of things in the market and how to buy mortgages and all that. I used to ask him about you know, learning things, and I said sometimes I just don't enjoy the stuff I'm learning, but I'm just trying to get through it. So he said, don't bother with it. Learn what you love, learn what you like. That's what you'll connect to. And that's what keep, will keep you studying. Um, he, he once told me that if I ever, this is when I was still single, I said, if I ever, if I ever want to learn Kutchim properly, I should go to Brisk, which I never did. And I'm you know, pretty happy about that. But um, uh, but uh, he but he said they 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 seem to know what they're doing there. He used to t- poke fun at Brisk sometimes, but he said they, know, they happen to know Kachim. So I said, if that's the case, then why didn't you ever go to Brisk? So he said, I learned everything with my father, and he really did. His father was his only rebbe, and he learned basically kol Rakula with his father. Um, he, when when I was leaving um, the yeshiva and going getting a job, going to work. So I went to speak to him. I said, you know, going leaving Kailal and going to work, it's a big move, it's a big step. And, you know, some people say to stick it out and stay longer in learning, stay longer in full-time learning in Kailal and push off going to work. Or some say don't even go to work altogether. Like, what's, the, what's your stance? He said, you need to make a living for your family. You have a responsibility to them. The only way to do it is to go to work. So what's to go to work? He he like he didn't even get the question. I was sitting there with him for fifteen minutes. I remember in his house, and and we're like going through it, and and he he like didn't get it. And finally, I kind of like blurted out. I said, you know, in the gas in the street, they say today that you should, you know, working is the wrong way. And you know, I live in Israel, and there are, I was in, recently in America. I found that certain communities there uh, have that philosophy as well. So uh, so he said. Uh, so I said, I said in the Gas, they say that, that, that long-term learning is the only way to go. 
And then going to work is very, very problematic at best and maybe forbidden at worst. It's like a four-letter word, work. So he says to me very strongly, he says, what do you care what they say in the gas? What, what's the difference? And with that one line, he just tossed away 60 years of Haredi ideology and and belief system and an entire community's belief system with many of their leaders at their helm. But he was an independent mind. He didn't go with convention. He didn't go with what was in style. He went with what he felt was the truth and and what he believed was the correct thing to do and didn't matter uh, what what other people thought. And that came up in many, many ways. He he was a, a very... Um, uh, you know, curious person about the world. Very, um, he. I remember watching him one Shabbos. He he was very close with his nephew Rabashar Arieli, um, and I once watched him trying to explain to Rabashar Arieli what email is. This is I'm sure Rabashar knows by now. This was 15 years ago, and he's explaining to him how computers work and what email is, and it was fascinating. And he was getting kind of frustrated when Rabashar didn't understand. He was asking too many questions. You know, he told me that. His family still ha- maintains a connection to the Amshanover Rebbe from Shanghai days when the Amshanover and Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, uh stood at the uh, head of the refugee community in, along with the Mayor Ashkenazi in uh, Shanghai. So he still he still uh, he still had what to do with the Amshanover Rebbe in uh, in Beit Vagan. Um, he used to tell me stories about Shanghai. He he. Um, um, was also, and I, at one point I got a little burnt out of Mir Yeshiva, so I went to America for a few months and I wanted to go to Lakewood, uh, BMG as it's known, Lakewood, the Yeshiva for an El, an El Zaman. And the Lakewood Yeshiva doesn't accept for El Zaman. So I asked the Rafal, maybe he could help me out. So he said, oh, I know Ramal Kiel, I'll call him up. So he went ahead and called the Ramal Kiel. I got into Lakewood for El you know, begrudgingly, they let me in. Uh, Ramal Kiel probably had a rough time saying no to Rebifal. And, I mean, how often did Rebifal actually call up and try to ask people for favors like that? And I remember when I got to Lakewood, I went over to Ramal Kiel and I said, I'm Yehuda Geber, I'm coming here for El, Ramal Kiel Cutler, the Rashiva of Lakewood. And he says to me, oh, you're that guy from Rebifal. I said, yep, I'm that guy. But needless to say, uh, Lakewood then sent my father a tuition bill, so they got their uh, end of the deal uh, as well. And, and uh, he was one of the first Russian yeshiva that I know of that used his, his used a computer on a regular basis. He used to do all his learning on a computer. Again, this is ten, fifteen years ago. It could be it's much more common today. In those days, especially in Israel, it definitely was not that common, and. Um, we had a chabura in his house on on Fridays, an hour and a half chabura, nine thirty to eleven, which I fell asleep every single week at his dining room table during that chabura. But he still let me come back. But um, but uh, he, sometimes he would actually get up in the middle of the chabura to consult his computer for something for some source, and it was in the next room. And he would tell us, "It was always, I'm going to ask my chavrusa." Uh, uh, some a question. He says, "You know who my chavrusa is? Mein computer, my computer." And he would say, "My chavrusa veis kol kula. My chavrusa knows the entire Torah." <laughs> he was, uh, was very proud of his relationship with his computer. He'd actually type up 
all his shiurim. Every shiur he gave, he would type up himself, and then he would print them out, and then he would come to the but, various different batimidrashim in the mirror and distribute them, and he would give them out as little booklets to to, to everyone. Uh, one time during one of those chaburas, he he there was a you know a rainstorm outside and it thundered. So a few of us said the bracha that we say about thunder, and a few other guys weren't sure whether to say the bracha because it's in the middle of a chabura. So they interrupted Riverfall and they said, "Should we say the bracha on the? Should we say the bracha?" So he said, "What bracha?" So he said, "On the thunder." He said, "Oh, it thundered. Then definitely say the bracha." And meaning he didn't hear the thunder because he was very concentrated on learning. Now I'll be honest. I've read variants of stories like that pretty much about every single gadol. It's kind of like one of those uh, um, cut-and-paste type of generic uh, rabbi stories that's in a, you know, every book out there. And because of that, you know, I had my uh, reservations about stories like that. But here, this is something I was actually an eyewitness to. I was sitting right there, I heard the thunder, I made the bracha, and I saw what he said, so it was a pretty powerful to me to be able to be privileged to witness it firsthand. And um, he, um, one time, um, he, he, he had a, a godless in learning. He, was, he, knew, he knew everything, he knew Kala Tarakula, and he got very, um, very heated up whenever, and I used to, you know, when I would, we had a rotation by, by Rabash Rarieli's shir, we had a rotation of, of saying chaburas to other members of the shir. And now before I would say mine, I would always run it by him first, and not a single time did he ever agree with me. He would always start yelling, and he was very sharp, very strong-minded. One time I was a little stubborn, and I kept on arguing with him, and he starts yelling at me, I explained this to you five times already. If you didn't get it now, then when are you going to get it? Just stop bothering me. I explained to you, you're wrong, and move on. You know, one time I was there schmoozing with him, and some other guy asked him a question, and it seemed to him that it was a little too abstract, his question. He liked it on the page. And uh, he was asking a question of, about, um, um, uh, I think it was about testimony, if it's me, pihem v'lemi piksavim, that the Adam, the witnesses, have to relate and say, speak out their testimony. They can't do a write-in testimony. They can't have a sworn affidavit. So the guy was asking what, what speech and writing is not a form of speech, and it was getting a little too abstract. So one of Rafal's children happened to have been married, to happens to be married, excuse me, to Ramesha Shapiro, the great uh, gadol who was very involved in machshava and and, uh, and that type, that realm of Jewish thought. So Rafal interrupts the guy and says. These type of questions of Jewish philosophy, you really should refer to my Mechutin or Bameshi Shapiro. Don't bother me with it. And he was very, very sharp like that. He had very, very clear ideas about what the proper way of learning is to be. Um, he used to come sometimes into the, the, the base Medrash to yell at Rabasher Arieli to discuss with him. And Rabasher is like the most sweetest, calmest, gentle soul out there. And Rafal, when he spoke in learning, would yell and would gesticulate with his hands and was very, very uh, vehement in his in his uh, arguments. And it was just the, the, the funniest thing to watch the two of them. 
And in fact, by the Chabur, we would sometimes quote Reb Asher uh, to Reb Rafal, and he would say, I don't trust you guys, because I heard so many things that people say about Reb Asher, and then I come to him afterwards, and he says to me, no, I never said that. So obviously everyone just misquotes him, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I don't trust you guys anymore. You know, I was something ask him questions about a shir he gave or something he gave and 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 he would sometimes he wouldn't have time or whatever it was and he said I'll get back to you and so he would actually come looking for you and he would say I owe you an answer and he would come and sit down with you and he would say we should sit down he didn't want to stand too long and he would say let's sit down we'll discuss your question and you know one time I went to him after davening and I asked him a question and uh, I woke up late the next several mornings, and I didn't show up to the davening at the yeshiva, which happened quite often. And after about a week, I came to davening in the yeshiva, and he comes over to me after davening, and he says, I was looking for you after davening. Where were you the last few days? I said, oh, I woke up late, and I didn't come to davening. He says, well, you asked me a question. I told you I'll get back to you. So here's the answer. Let's sit down. He, um, he was... He one of the things I was privileged to see, and many people were privileged to see, was the the relationship he had with his wife. He was never he had, again he had never had any airs about him. So he didn't go around in a car or even in a cab. He would take public transportation, and would very often see him on the uh, this ancient history the old two bus that went from the area uh, passed through the area of the Mir to the Kaisel, and he would sometimes go with his wife to the Kaisel. People would see him taking walks with his wife. They even nicknamed him in the yeshiva the Shonari Shaina couple. This is when he was 75 years old. Um, and he told me even once that after the 1967 Six-Day War, he would want to go with his wife to Hebron, to the to the Maras HaMachpelo. They would go to Shar Shechem, and they would take an Arab bus to to Hebron. And they would sit on the bus together with all the Arabs. And he told me that today they wouldn't do that. A little dangerous. He said after the Six-Day War... They had no qualms about doing that, and um, and that, that was um, that was something he also did. Now I have about five million other stories, but I went about ten minutes over time already, so I guess we'll have to wait for next year's uh, yard site. So that was just a little taste of who the great uh, Rabbi Fol Shmulevitz was, and in all aspects, his humanity, his learning, his opinions. And uh, and everything else about him is just an amazingly warm and personable and re- re- very real person. And I was uh, privileged to to know him just a little bit. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at uh, ygebss at gmail dot com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. Subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.